Good evening, and welcome to tonight's Fireside Chat with Lyndon LaRouche for the end of the uh, year, uh, December 30th. Uh, And there are several things to discuss, but we want to, first of all, update everyone on the, at least the press readout of the conversation that occurred between President Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin today. Uh, Let me indicate that the phone call that they conducted is a phone call which was intended to be prior to the January 10th, uh, 12th, and 13th events um, that are happening, meetings that are going to be happening. Uh, At the moment, it appears that neither president will be attending those meetings. Uh, And here is the readout. Uh, Before I go through this readout, Let me also point out that there is a section of this meeting, at least, matter of fact, probably virtually all of it, of the discussion phone call that has not been released and is not being released in public. It lasted for just under an hour as well, because it's 50 minutes in total. All right. So Washington said the following. President Joe Biden in a call with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Well, actually, let me explain. Excuse me. This is Tass's report on what Washington uh, had to say. U.S. President Joe Biden in a call with Russian leader Vladimir Putin said Washington and his and its allies were ready to respond strongly if Russia, quote, invades Ukraine. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said in a statement on Thursday. Quote, President Biden urged Russia to de-escalate tensions with Ukraine, the statement said. He made clear that the United States and its allies and partners will respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. This was the second time this month that the president held talks. The previous conversation took place by video link on December 7th with topics including Ukraine, bilateral relations, cybersecurity, and Iran's nuclear deal. The latest talks were requested by Putin. The aim was to continue discussions started during the previous talks, so forth and so on, because that's what they had to say. Haas uh, reports in terms of what Putin had to say the following. Russian President Vladimir Putin said during a a call with his U.S. counterpart, Joe Biden, that relations between the two countries could be severed completely in the event threatened quote, unprecedented sanctions become a reality. Kremlin aide Yuri Ushakov told reporters on Friday. Putin was responding to Biden's warning that Western countries will introduce massive economic and military sanctions if further escalation on the Ukrainian border takes place, Ushakov said. Quote, our president immediately responded to that by saying that if the West goes ahead, to introduce above mentioned, uh, the above-mentioned unprecedented sanctions, then all, that, then all that could cause a total severance of relations between our countries. And most serious damage will be done to Russia's relations with the West in general, diplomats said. Putin warned future generations will regard these moves as mistakes, the aide said. Quote, there's been a lot of mistakes, of these mistakes in past thir- in the past 30 years, and it's preferable in this situation that they aren't made anymore, Ushikov said. All right, so uh, again, 
Uh, we don't actually know what was said in the calls. We know what these two reports tell us. Um, and uh, in addition to that, there was another statement uh, which was made by Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi uh, today. He said this, quote, I strongly believe that if our great powers, China and Russia, stand side by side and boost their cooperation, the world order will be unshakable and global principles irrefutable. Hegemonism will not be able to defeat us. All right, so now that's where we actually are on December 30th. Um, uh, We're on the eve of something more than simply a new year. Uh, And the conversations that we've entered into over the past weeks, in particular the past year of this organization, there's some things to be said about that in the course of the discussion, uh, renders us capable of addressing this circumstance. Uh, Yesterday, uh, the Schiller Institute uh, conducted its annual uh, commemoration service at the Teardrop Memorial. Uh, this is something that we do every year to al- honor the Alexandrov Ensemble, uh, which was killed tragically in a plane crash. Uh, this is the most famous of Russian uh, choruses. Uh, and they were killed on their way to Syria. Uh, to do a charity and benefit concert. Um, so uh, we were there. Russian representatives were there, representatives of the uh, town Bayonne, where the uh, uh, monument is, 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 is there. That's the Teardrop Memorial Monument, originally dedicated by uh, Bill Clinton um, and uh, by Vladimir Putin uh, back, I think, in 2006. And uh, it, it was, it's a monument to honor the dead who were killed at the World Trade Center uh, and in these attacks of September 11th. Uh, so the ceremony was about an hour, about 45 minutes, I should say. Uh, and there were statements uh, from, uh, the, uh, from the Russia uh, conveyed by the United Nations representatives that attended. Uh, Helga Zepp-Larouche had a statement as well. Um, there were several musical selections, um, and there were some statements from the local uh, officials that uh, have always emphasized the need for a cooperation between uh, not just Russia and the United States, but all those that should be united uh, in the struggle against terrorism in particular, but in general uh, for the struggle for uh, understanding and harmony among people. So that was done by us. More might be said about that later, but I just wanted to indicate that at the beginning of what we're going to go through. Uh, We will be getting a report uh, a bit later after we hear our lead-off presentation by David Shaven. I wanted to make sure he said something about the COVID situation, not meaning merely the current situation, but the overall situation. And the reason for that is that the, the looming reality that defines what we have transitioned into is that physical economy is going to become the dominant uh, practice of the next, of the remaining part of this decade, 
We've gone through the first year of this decade. And this is a decade in which what we're going to see is the triumph of physical economy over monetarism. We cite that because there's a lot of sort of peculiar ideas that people have about what physical economy is. Uh, and they talk about many things. They use terms like capitalism uh, without recognizing that the founders of the country never used the term and did not think of themselves as capitalists. There was no such idea. They did think about themselves as having founded and established a revolutionary government that had to establish systems of money, credit, and banking that allowed them to be independent from using the coin of the British realm uh, or the credit of the British crown. Uh, And uh, to that end, uh, American military hero Alexander Hamilton drafted those documents. Uh, And to that end, uh, military hero George Washington presided over the administration of the first of the constitutionally elected uh, presidency of the United States. Now, that constitutional presidency of the United States has been severely compromised, and not necessarily mortally wounded, but severely compromised since September 11th. Uh, and uh, our role in the United States specifically uh, is to allow people, despite the fact that that has occurred, to begin to wrap their mind around how they can form uh, a force uh, which not only supports and defends the presidency of the United States, something we've been actively doing since particularly 1998 under the title Committee to Defend the Presidency in one form or the other, Um, but more importantly, how physical economy that the United States invented essentially uh, as an active science attached to a, a, a working government. Uh, we didn't invent physical economy. That was invented by Gottfried Leibniz um, uh, in 1671. He was the first one to talk about the principles in, called, in, a, in an essay called Society and Economy. He wrote it when he was 26 years old. Uh, but the first government that lived by those principles um, uh, as, as, a, as a nation, uh, was the United States. Yes, there were city-states that came before that, that sometimes practiced aspects of this approach um, and were even um, ingenious in the things that they did. The Florentine Republic, for example, was one such, but that's one city. But the first nation to ever do that is the United States. The United States is the oldest national system of physical economy. Uh, It has, in the last 50 years, abandoned physical economy uh, and has a lot of uh, television stations and a lot of radio stations and a lot of social media platforms and a lot of other things uh, trying to fraudulently assert that America has been growing when America has been physically declining since 1971, uh, it, it, between 1966 and 1971, that process uh, began, uh, but then it, it went into a precipitous decline as of 1971, and it has never recovered from that. There's 50 years of physical economic decay 
that characterizes the United States, the longest period of decay in its history. And it's the, 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 the inability of many people to either know that or to fight that that's been the biggest problem. So we just wanted to sort of, sort of state that as we meet here tonight, last meeting, last discussion, um, there's, a, there's a profound danger, but there's also uh, the, on the horizon – uh, a time when physical economy is going to rule. Now, to be able to get at these kinds of ideas, or how we would somehow get this across to the American people, it's it's useful to take up something, which I ask that Anastasia Battle take up. And uh, this uh, sees uh, that is this right now, and she'll tell you more about this. Uh, we have a magazine named Leonora, uh, which uh, is uh, publishing its second uh, edition. Uh, and uh, she wrote an editorial for the magazine called To What End Do We Educate? So I asked that what she might do is to start us off tonight uh, and, and sort of set the tone or the stage for the coming year and our battle to make physical economy and the science of physical economy, as Lyndon LaRouche in specific represented that, the dominant point of discussion or inflection point of discussion uh, for our people and therefore for the United States to the extent that we're capable. So, Anastasia? Hi. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, I wanted to take a minute to um, give people a sense of why we started this magazine, um, because it's coming off of a very serious effort that we have in the LaRouche movement to create a third generation youth movement. Um, and at this point, it's, it's growing on an international level. We have people in just about every continent except for uh, Antarctica, <laughs> maybe even there. But the intention behind it is to recruit youth not just to agree with what we're saying and to go out and shake some signs or something, but to be recruited to Mr. Lyndon LaRouche's polemical method, that it's not about agreement or, you know, what have you, but it's about understanding how do you come to know something to be true. And that's what we're attempting to do with this Leonora, uh, is to really create that discussion of how do you come to know something to be true. Uh, and this particular issue that uh, we're going to be sending out tomorrow, uh, which you're all welcome to become subscribers by uh, becoming a recurring member of the Schiller Institute. You can do that at the Schiller Institute website. Um, this issue is about what is aesthetical education. And we go through pretty quickly, you know, just thinking about what, what does it mean to have an education? You know, really sit down and, and think about that. What does it mean to educate someone? And a lot of people, when I talk to them, uh, you know, will think schools, they'll think teachers, they'll think, you know, some kind of setting like that. But how many children can you think of, maybe, you know, even inside the United States or in other countries, who don't have access to any of that? Does that mean they can't learn? So what, what is this quality? What does it mean to learn something? How does somebody learn something? And when you start to get to the, the, the core of it, 
when you provoke someone to have a thought and they're struggling with it, they're struggling with the problem, they don't know how to solve it, and then they stop and they look at you and they got that gleam in their eye. And they're like, yes, I know what it is. I know the answer. That's when somebody has actually made a discovery, when they've discovered something. And that's different than a, just a, taking up information, which is often how education is being pushed on our youth now. I mean, it's really not a wonder that many of our young people are demoralized, are disgusted by the school system, are depressed. I mean, you could take it even a step further. You know, they're homicidal or they're suicidal. There are very serious psychological problems um, that are that are happening within our youth because of the way that we're treating them. So if you're not situating people from that standpoint of having this excitement to learn something, not just to take on some information, but to actually have knowledge of something, they actually lose that quality of their humanity. Something's gone. So you really see that reflected, you know, even in, in adults. You know, you look at our our government, if <laughs> you look at our at our congressmen, <laughs> you start wondering, it's like, man, where did they uh, crawl out of? What <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and and you you have to really think about, you know, if we're not educating people to um, be drawn to that identity of constantly trying to find truth, of enjoying it, of loving it, then they're, they've lost something in them. And it's actually a really exciting uh, moment right now because I think a lot of people are realizing that something is missing and they've been searching for a long time and tried a lot of pretty, you know, stupid ideas (laughs) We've tried a lot of a lot of bad ideas, maybe even ideas ideas that seemed truthful at the time, but they've come to show themselves to, you know, be uh, goose eggs, you know, to to not have much substance to them, and that that leaves us. That leaves us fifty years of work, uh, you know, tons of of papers from Mr. Larouche of looking at, um, you know, the, the various thinkers throughout history who have taught us how to um, make these discoveries. And I think if we really take that, um, this method of, of forming a discovery to heart and try to do that with every young person, every adult that we can right now, we could inspire a whole revolution of moral change that is so possible right now because of, of the lack of, uh, of morality that we've had so far. And <clears throat> this, um, this issue, we go through examples of that, of what that looks like. Um, right in the beginning, you've got... Um, Lainey Rubenstein uh, did a, we ha- I had her pair her article with Richard Black, and she goes through looking at Humboldt 
who was a, an educator in uh, in Europe, um, on, on going through, you know, not just this, you know, get some grades and, you know, try to get your achievements going and prove how good you are, but having actual knowledge of something. How do you develop your character? How do you develop your spiritual character? Uh, so she really develops this idea of an aesthetical education. And then you look at what China is doing now in Richard, Black, Richard Black's article, that China is actually trying to do it. <laughs> They're actually doing it. And it's, it's undeniable. They're looking at these great thinkers like Schiller, like Humboldt, to uh, map that onto their own culture and bring those ideas into their own culture, which is completely unique uh, for, for what they're doing. Uh, and I, so I really recommend looking at this and how they're able to do that, because that's what we can do. We, we used to have these kinds of curriculums in the United States. That's what we could do. And then you look at this really beautiful interview that uh, Mike Billington and my husband, Stuart Battle, did uh, with this group called Heartbeat. And this is a group that has gone into the prison system and decided to take prisoners and teach them how to sing. And they took a, a group of prisoners and put them, um, they put them on the stage to sing the Fidelio Opera. There's this chorus uh, in the Fidelio Opera, some of you may be familiar with it, where the prisoners are singing about being out in the sun and um, having freedom uh, and enjoying this, this moment. But it's really quite beautiful. And in this interview, at the end, the, um, the director was kind enough to give us the letters of prisoners who wrote in to thank them for, for what they did. Um, and some of these prisoners, sorry, this is a really beautiful thing. Um, some of the prisoners just described how for the first time in their lives, they actually experienced beauty. They didn't know the world was this beautiful. They've never seen anything like that before. And they've obviously been completely changed. Right? These are supposed to be the low lives and the worst of society and blah, 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 blah. But here they are experiencing one of the most beautiful pieces <laughs> written. And they're overjoyed and have overcome whatever the, the problems were that led them to that pathway in life. So this is an example of what what can be done, what this what this quality is of being able to change someone, that it doesn't just happen by, you know, throwing something at them and hoping that they're gonna figure it out. But it comes from really being subjective and looking at someone's life and who they are, not to judge them or have sympathy for them, or to feel sorry for them, but to know that there's something more, that they can understand the truthful principles in the world, learn what they are, and act upon it. 
and that um, that action you can uh, call it you know a, a form of education, but really it's it's what Schiller describes or excuse me what, what we're describing as agopic love. So everything that we do really comes from from that principle. It comes from that act of being able to reach deep into people to see where they're at and to know where they could be. And uh, I really want to encourage everybody to to get on this um, onto this issue. Help us organize <laughs> this uh, educational uh, curriculum. We're creating an educational committee. Uh, 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 Mrs. Helga Theplarouche's uh, request. We're going to be working very hard to um, create this curriculum in order to give a, a real future for our youth. And I think that's it's very possible right now. So I think I'll I'll close my remarks with that and uh, see what others have to say. Okay, very good. Uh, now, David, if you're there, uh, let's go to you. But just before we do, let me simply announce one, one element. Some of us have been in the habit of for now the past 20 years of watching the opera Tedelio uh, on, on New Year's Day. Um, this, uh, this evolved from the time that Linda LaRouche was imprisoned. And for, for anybody that's on that doesn't know that Linda LaRouche was in prison, he was in prison from January 27th of uh, 1989 until January 27th of 1994. And it was in that period uh, that some of us uh, began that. Uh, and I would suggest there may be versions of this, David, or others may wish to recommend um, that may be available on YouTube uh, that people do that. Uh, and if you can't get through the whole opera, watch some scenes. We can be very clear about that from the, from the well, we actually, it spoils it a little bit if you don't watch the whole thing. But I would just point that out, that as an end of the year, beginning of the year, a moral exercise, a spiritual exercise, it's a good thing to do. So if you know the opera, you know what I'm referring to. If you don't know it, uh, you might contact people uh, that are on the call and talk to them about it individually. Uh, and we can arrange to, to do that, or maybe David might reference it in any case. But but uh, the reason I asked David to get on uh, tonight is to just update us uh, on what the situation is with respect to the rapidly spreading Omicron uh, virus. We were at uh, 1 million cases worldwide uh, yesterday. Uh, I don't know more about it. I guess he'll tell us. And then once he's finished, we'll open up the queue for questions or discussion. Okay, David? Yeah, just on the uh, Fidelio, the, the um, uh, Anastasia put out uh, the first issue, and the, there's an, I did an article there uh, people can look at, and the second issue that she described is quite wonderful. Uh, a million cases. You're so yesterday, Dennis. Um Yesterday's figures for what happened on Tuesday, yes, we the world went over a million by far. T uh, today's figures on what happened yesterday, uh, Wednesday, uh, we're at 1,730,000 1, 1, cases. We're above that now. Um, the world had not gone over a million cases in a day 
before this week. Uh, we're now averaging. We've now pushed the daily average. Seven-day average has now gone over a million. Uh, we're in a whole new world on this. Back when India was doing uh, almost you know, over 400,000 cases a day, we didn't get any. We didn't get to a million cases for the world. Um, and again, you know, these are identified cases. Uh, it doesn't mean that the, the infection is only that many people. Uh, you can in, the, how far the infection is spread is only uh, indicated uh, the, the, by the amount of cases we've identified. People have tested positive on tests. Um, so this we're just looking at a shadow, but that's getting a really big shadow now. The United States yesterday had almost a half a million cases in one day. Um, the United States, United Kingdom, and France are almost a million cases by themselves, those three added together. There are over half the cases in the world, about 55% of the cases in the world showing up in those three countries. It's just, you know, beyond the beyond. Um, what I'd say is this. Let's assume the very, very best. Let's assume that Omicron is uh, is 10 times less virulent than Delta. It's not going to turn out. Let's assume that over the next several weeks, you know, Dr. Fauci's estimate is that what happened in South Africa recently is that um, the Omicron surged for several weeks, and South Africa's actually, uh, the cases have retreated. They've got like a one-third of the cases over the last two weeks. It dropped down to, I think, 7,000 a day from over 20,000 a day. And, uh, you know, the, 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 science, the scientific team there is quite good, and they've, uh, they're convinced they're over the worst. Um, uh, makes you ask the question, why is the United Kingdom and the United States and other countries in, the, in Europe, it's all Europe and, the United, and North America, why is this happening? You know, it's, uh, it brings up a big subjective factor why we can't control ourselves. But the um, assume the very best that oh, Dr. Fauci, based upon the South Africa uh, results, says, well, you know, maybe this is a two to three week thing. Maybe it'll be four or five weeks in the United States when we hit our peak by mid to late January, and then it'll start retreating. Okay, so we're at about uh, the hospitalization figure has already gone up from around seventy thousand, a little bit less than seventy thousand people in the hospital uh, in the United States uh, 10, 14 days ago to over 80,000 um, cases. Uh, the, um, the peak uh, a year ago in January, the first week of January uh, of hospitalizations was around 120, 130,000. And that was driving hospitals crazy back then, and the hope is that we won't go past that. But we basically had an increase of about ten or fifteen thousand cases in the last ten days or so. Uh, excuse me, a ten or fifteen thousand extra uh, hospital beds uh, from COVID patients. So you're watching the floodwaters rise on that. Um, we have not done anything in the last year to increase the hospital capacity. We've got burnout among the hospital staffs. You know, so we're really, 
assume the best. Assume that this wave, this tidal wave, comes and goes, and that the amount of uh, people who are sick, who are involved in the the airplanes, uh, flying the planes, the staffs there, the fire stations, the garbage workers, assume that the uh, amount of people who are not in hospitals but who have gotten infected at this rate of half a million a day, you know, it does, does not totally decimate the workforce, not from people who are going to hospitals, but simply for people who can't show up at work. Um, and we get through all this mess uh, in, 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 you know, in sometime in February. Then we've just gotten the smaller part of the tidal wave. The real problem is um, it's the same problem that happened. It's happened a couple of times now with these tidal waves. Uh, we simply don't want to wake up and face reality and smell the coffee on this stuff. Um, Lyndon LaRouche, 50 years ago, assembled a task force to look at the consequences on the physical economy of, of playing games with it, of having the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund impose conditionalities on underdeveloped countries. Uh, be real clever. You know, they don't treat, they don't uh, work by our rules and on um our programs, and then we have to just sort of give them tough love and shut them down. And lo and behold, it wasn't a big surprise that people's uh, diets were not as good. Their immune, the, the nutritional levels were suppressed. And Lewis made the bold forecast that you're going to suppress immune systems, uh, uh, nutritional levels, it's going to have consequences with immune systems. He pulled together a scientific task force in the in the mid-80s because of what had broken out at that point called AIDS. But I remind you what AIDS is, is acquired immune deficiency syndrome. We gave a name to something where the immune deficiency was causing problems. Um, the task force put out a big fat report back then. EIR published it. Uh, an emergency war plan to fight AIDS and other pandemics. Actually, the first one was called Economic Breakdown and the Threat of Global Pandemics. It made it clear what the IMF policies were was creating weak links. We call them Petri dishes. But it said the malaria, tuberculosis, yellow fever were cited as bubbling kettles of disease generation. HIV, a human immunodeficiency virus. We gave a name to this virus. And you'll find out all this stuff is just immunodeficiencies, which which will, which is present and will be present if we get through this tidal wave. Um, and we just got to look at it for what it is. The uh, 1985, they put out the report. It was distributed to all over the country, all over to senators, congressmen, hospitals, uh, scientific teams. Vice President George Bush said he's going to. Uh, this is the first Bush. He's going to uh, pay close attention to the report. The CDC. Uh, prevention director, um, you know, sim similar. The acting secretary for the Department of Health and Human Services, Dr. James Mason, um, he said in response to the report, yeah, we're much more optimistic about the general health of mankind. We just say thank you, but no thank you. So uh, given that response, uh, EAR put out two other reports in 1986, early on, an emergency war plan to fight AIDS and other pandemics. And then a few months later, um, no, excuse me. Uh, three years later, AIDS global showdown, mankind's total victory or total defeat. 
I reviewed all this, by the way, four months ago when we took a look at uh, in EIR, September 3rd issue of EIR, um, at where we stood with Delta, that I didn't know the Omicron was going to happen. But I, uh, I, uh, we did say, you know, we're, we're going to get um, – we have – the biggest problem with, Del- with Delta was we didn't look at uh, – after the January – last January's tidal wave uh, quieted down in February and March, we didn't respond to India's request when we were stockpiling vaccines here and they needed vaccines. We, we were clever. We said, no, not going to do that. And sure enough, Delta broke out in India, and the world went into a whole nother round. And uh, we just don't want to actually think that we're in a war against a virus that when you have suppressed immune systems, the virus can replicate more often. And when it replicates, uh, it has high, higher chances of mutating. And when you have a lot more mutations, someone will never harm us. But you just it's, it's playing Russian roulette. You just... You know, as long as that you're not going to actually dry up the pool of uh, uh, we're going to have something worse than Omicron. I mean, let me just tell you a little Greek on this. Omicron is there are two letters for O in Greek. One's called Omicron, O, o the small O, and one's called Omega, a big O. Uh, and you know, Omega is going to be a lot worse than Omicron. You know, with all the references to uh, going from alpha to omega, omega is at the end of the alphabet, and you don't want to get there in this case. And we're not doing anything to intervene on that. And what Helga LaRouche's call for world health system is not just being nice to countries to give them some hospitals. You need to have the what was the problem 50 years ago? You have the human race has the talent and the capability to have uh, electricity-created nuclear plants created, um, wipe out malaria with uh, DDT. We have all we had all that capability. It's very straightforward. You don't you don't deploy that capability. It, don't get surprised that you you're in this mess we're in. Um, I just mentioned a couple of things. What happened on that is. Uh, one, uh, outside of LaRouche's movement, uh, people didn't want to talk about what what LaRouche laid out in, in, in what, after the AIDS experience. We just looked the other way. And uh, one doctor named Dr. Peter Lurie actually published in a journal called AIDS that, yes, the World Bank and IMF structural adjustment, adjustment programs increased unemployment and poverty, decreased government spending on health, destroyed agricultural self-sufficiency, preempted industrial development, increased prostitution and drug trafficking, and this was causing reduced um, immune systems and furtherance of disease. And he was gone after and silenced, and everybody watched that happening. And they watched what happened to LaRouche in the intervening period, but this was Dr. Peter Lurie had no explicit connection with our movement, and he was made an example of also. So by 2000, you had, uh, well, this is, what is SARS-CoVid-2, the coronavirus that creates COVID? Uh, SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome-CoV-2, coronavirus because the first one was in 2003. 
we didn't call it number one, just like World War One or World War Two and World War One. You didn't know you're going to have World War Two. It was just the great war, the greatest war we ever had, supposedly. SARS COVID, uh, the SARS in in 2003 was also forecast the the severe acute respiratory syndrome. When it spread 10 years later, around 2012, it was called Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS. The this is not none of this stuff is is new. What uh, I'll just and the from the report I did in September, um, I'll go through a bunch of this stuff. People can go look at it, but it's um, give you a little bit of idea of what what we're facing. So during the recent period peak of COVID nineteen in India, there was also an outbreak of black fungus called uh, mucormycosis among survivors of COVID nineteen. They had over 45,000 cases in India and 4,300 deaths, not from COVID, from black fungus. It strikes the nose, the eyes, even the brain, typically about 12 to 18 days after the recovery from COVID. It's thought that the fungus seized the opportunity of immune systems that were overtaxed by the pandemic. However, in the United States, we had a fungus called Candida auris. It was developed in healthcare facilities in New York back in 2019 before people heard about COVID. And it took advantage in 2020 of the overtaxed and overcrowded hospitals. You had a bunch of ill people being, you know, congested in hospitals. And it became a super fungus in 2021, spread to hospitals in D.C. and Texas. It's resistant to all three levels of antifungal medications that we currently have, you know, and it does kill. You got 60% of the deer in Michigan test positive for COVID. Now, they don't suffer from COVID. It's not a disease they have. They put test positive for SARS for the coronavirus. You know, so it's it's there dormant in that animal species. When we get to the point of wiping it out in, from the human race, uh, we'll have some other issues to deal with. The, um, the um, well, I'll just end by saying the um, what, what I called back in September the new normal of 400,000 to 800,000 official new cases every day, which have been going on for a year. We've been bouncing back and forth between 400 and 800,000. Uh, those are the good old days. But even then, uh, the warning was, uh, well, the, the, the new normal uh, has said in, even if it's impolite to say so. And the same sloppy and immoral habits of thought in some countries that we clever people can more or less protect ourselves in bad times and let the hard times fall upon the unfortunates, that creeps in. The fantasy is that we can just vaccinate maybe three times, maybe four times, five times as needed until those poor people overseas stop sending the virus in our direction. But the simple but perhaps hard lessons not sunk in. As long as the world plays whack-a-mole with the virus, leaving it as a permanent reserve to continue mutating, the coronavirus or one of its cousins or some viral, even fun fungal infection will come back to visit. So we're just playing with fire in this stuff until we get serious about getting, doing a full mobilization, the same mobilization we should have had before uh, SARS-CoV-2 was set in our direction, to actually do the right thing. To build up the world to middle-class standards minimally, clean water, enough nutrition, wipe out poverty the way China's been doing it. We don't want to do it. You know, it's 
we're looking at well, what was yesterday? 1.731,000 cases identified yesterday. I don't think it's going to be smaller today. Um, you assume that you can assume whatever you want about that, how much is going to be viral or not, uh, whether it's half as viral, a quarter as viral. Maybe it's more viral. It'll end up being more viral than Delta. The, I'll say one thing about that. The, the studies out of South Africa that people use to say, well, it's not going to be as viral. South Africa got hit among their younger population and the younger, uh, the you know, the 15 to 35-year-olds. And it's true that there wasn't, uh, the, the, you weren't getting as much hospitalization nor death among that population. Their systems are overall stronger. Um, it has, there's some issues that, well, I should mention. What the, the Tulio de Oliveira is the science, head of the team in South Africa, the scientist who identified the Omicron. And uh, w- what their study down there has shown um, is really just a case of uh, what I've been saying about having these human petri dishes, but they had an interesting wrinkle to it that in one woman in her late 30s who had HIV, uh, um, in South Africa they've got eight million people with S- with HIV. Uh, about a third of them are not getting. Two thirds of them are getting uh, the drugs to keep the situation under control. About a third of them are not. Uh, She was not. But even when she started getting uh, medication, was in a hospital, they're testing her for COVID. And she, very unusual, she, COVID normally invades your system and it's out, you know, 10 or 20 days later for the most part. She had, was tested for over eight months, over 240 days, multiple tests. Uh, The COVID never went away. She ended up with, because her immune system was could not fight it off. It made no difference whether she got vaccines or not. It just, so, but it wasn't taking her down. It was, so it was there uh, in one person instead of a community. And in that, uh, you know, uh, present for a long period of time, having a chance to replicate and create more mutations. She ended up with over 30 identifiable mutations. It's only a coincidence that the Omicron has over 30 new mutations also. But it's not a coincidence that some hand, I don't know how many, but some small subset, three, four, five, six, seven, some uh, share of uh, mutations, uh, some group of mutations she had, which also the, the Omicron um, virus shows the same three, four, five, six, seven, some handful of mutations. Uh, and that's sort of scary. She, they might have identified patient zero in this case, you know, patient one or whatever. Either way, the lesson of it, as Tudio put it, is yes, virus evolution can happen among the immunosuppressed, where there's one person going on for like 240 days, or it's what LaRouche was saying all along, uh, of whole populations being nutritionally deprived and having immune systems being suppressed. Um, this happens, though, not just with people with HIV. It's been known 2.7% of the American population is in a category of suppressed immune systems from either uh, cancer treatments, uh, autoimmune systems, uh, chronic TB, organ transplant situations, uh, but the, also the people around the world with diabetes, obesity, uh, uh, and basically just nutrient deficiencies all fall in these categories, suppressed immune systems. 
the 2.7 percent of the, of the U.S. population that are in this category, they were the ones who first we used the boosters on, and it had dramatic, dr- dramatically good effects because the first two rounds uh, did not help their weakened immune systems do what was necessary. But we did, who knew that the third round was going to uh, boost, you know, uh, give them a much, much better protection? And that occurred. So this latest case of Omicron may be traceable to this one woman in her late 30s, uh, but either way, it's just a marker for the general principle that you don't do right by having proper diets and clean water and just normal things. The physical economy will slap you in the face. And Lynn knew that, Mr. LaRouche knew that 50 years ago and had the audaciousness, you know, to tell all the clever people back then that uh, you can try to steal money from the world, you can make money on the cheap, but don't think the rules of the universe have changed. It's going to cost you a whole lot more by being so clever in the short term. So the sooner we apply that lesson, if we get out of this mess in January or February, this this immediate mess, uh, we'll have a much deeper problem beyond Omicron to deal with. So that's the overview. Okay, very good. So I want to let, invite people to ask questions, comments, and I'm going to come back for a minute to what Anastasia brought up because this is precisely the question of why educate. Uh, to what end do we educate? Because what you just heard, one of the elements of education had better be blasting people's axioms out from under them. Because their axiomatic outlook is what actually will end up killing them. What you don't know can kill you. Contrary to the famous uh, silly adage, what you don't know won't hurt you. No, actually, what you don't know is exactly what can kill you. But also, what you refuse to see can kill you. And so this issue of beauty, this issue of compassion, this issue of generosity, these This is a scientific question as much as it is what people call a moral question. There is a science of morality. And and that is what has been and is in doubt. Uh, We all know, I think we all know, that you have this situation in uh, Times Square tomorrow night. There's going to be 15,000 people that are getting together in Times Square. Despite the fact that Paris canceled, Rome canceled, other cities canceled. New York said, no, we're going to go. We're going to go ahead. So when you see that, um, you have to ask yourself the question, uh, is it the case that people lack the morality to survive in the sense that they can't respond uh, by, by, by reversing what they normally think in order to do what they have to do, which will run, may run very much against their common practice. Like in warfare, where, uh, as, as has been said often, the first thing you have to do in a, when a war breaks out is fire all of the generals, because those are all people that are going to be very good at fighting the last war, but not the one that they're actually confronted with. So this is just some thoughts for, for what we've got to look at here, but I just want to point out that 
The Leonora magazine, named after the heroine of Fidelio, is available. Again, you can get that by becoming a member of Schiller Institute. I think you, Anastasia, you, use the term recurring member. I guess that's the idea is a recurring contribution. And uh, we just invite everybody correct. to do that. Let me. Hmm? I was just, okay. correct. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, okay, great, fine. Let me go to the questions. There's a couple questions now, so let's go right to that. Yes, hello. Uh, I'm able to hear you, Dennis. Uh, I, uh, forgive me, I forgot the uh, other two names. Uh, David, uh, I heard one of them, but I forgot the other. Uh, Anastasia, thank you, Dennis. Uh, forgive me. Uh, and in response to uh, the uh, your monologue, uh, David and Anastasia about education, in the, which I which I hold near and dear, and my parents did not fool around with me. Sure, I got through school in the degrees of I, otherwise I, I get something upside my head but nowadays <clears throat> proper uh, education enforcing critical thinking fostering creativity how do how does that not to be cynical but how does that necessarily translate to cause if we're going to get out of this mess we need more doctors engineers machinists Every productive career you can think of. What, uh, um, and it's a two-part question. How does uh, that, per se, um, improving the education system uh, lead to more? Because what you have nowadays, is, well, some doctors, not all, but some, they're just concerned about their own pockets. Like, for example, but Fauci's one of them. I'm going to say it. He didn't give one flying damn about public health. He only cares about... He's what the LaRouche would call... Uh, uh, I read in an article. Uh, what you guys would call the example of a bread-fed scholar. He only cares about his own self. And so question is, uh, how does uh, your guys' idea of proving the educational quality translate to people that care about other people, not their own pockets, and go into productive careers. And the um, second part is, um, yeah, okay, yeah, that was, there was a two parts. And, yeah, so that's it there. How does, okay, so uh, let's that, let them answer that. I had a problem with that. Else can go ahead. Okay. Um yeah, I would love to take on this question. Um, yeah, I think that's Anastasia on aesthetic education. Go for it. <laughs> um, so I, I want to pose a couple of, of things back to you. Because um, when, I, when I talk with young people, right, let, let alone doctors and professionals, but a couple of the, of the most common responses I get are, why do I need to learn this stuff, all this complicated stuff? It's not practical. I'm not going to be able to use it in a job that I'm going to take on. Um, or they're even more cynical than that, and they say, well, there's no point in me learning anything anyway because there is no truth. And so, you know, what is the thinking in somebody that they think that those things are true? Why, why, what would lead somebody to have those thoughts? Well, if they've never taken on a problem 
from from a very young age, from a child, you know, from learning in school, of why something works the way that it does. Right? They've never actually experienced why something works the way that it does. They've always been told this is the answer, this is the right answer, this is the right information for you. Right? And that it's not just about like critical thinking. You know, can you think really hard <laughs> and figure it out or something? But can you understand why something works the way that it does? Because that's understanding a principle. And so if you don't actually have that as a method to, to figure out how something works, figure out why something is truthful, then you actually have no faith in anything. And that is what leads people uh, what I find in, in talking with folks, especially really cynical, beaten down people, is that they don't have faith in their own mind. They don't have faith in anybody else's mind. They don't think anything can be solved because they don't know what that, what that feels like. Or if they had felt it, <laughs> somebody came and bashed them and really tried to destroy them. And so they ended up you know, losing that spark. And that does happen. That, that I mean, we've had, you know, Mr. LaRouche would talk about the old um, professor with the yellowing cards, you know, <laughs> wanting to to beat up any any new student with the spark of of genius in them because they didn't want to change. You know, you were bringing up with the breadfed scholar. Um, so I would say that that's where the, the that you know that inspiration for optimism really comes from it comes from that mental action and if you don't activate that in people then just pushing practical things like yeah we got to build hospitals and we got to get doctors and this and that it's going to fall really really short of what's actually necessary to solve the problems like what david was going through like we, we have to do something more to solve the uh, what's actually causing the problem of the pandemic. You know, it's not just about getting a bunch of vaccines or getting a bunch of doctors. There's something much more to the problem that we have to solve. So I'll see what you think about that. I just add, they're very good. I mean, I just add, uh, don't extrapolate from Dr. Fauci or I don't know his, exactly his soul, but don't extrapolate from the current cynicism among all sorts of professionals. All, every, there's not an institution, scientists, teachers, you know, plumbers. There's not an institution in the, in, that's, that's in great shape, given what the country's been going through for decades. Um, so, but we don't, you know, what LaRouche said a long, long time ago was, uh, uh, don't worry about a part of this thing. People will will turn on the light bulbs, the the light switch in their house, and they'll get they'll get water running out of it. You know, people are already getting bumped into contradictions in their life. You know, can they go see grandma? Is it okay to have Christmas? What about my football game? You know, this is gonna. You guarantee we're in a great situation. You guarantee that people, without us doing anything, without lifting a finger. They're going to be confronted with all sorts of things. However, the problem is if, they, if there's not a force for, for grounded optimism for people who know a way out of this mess, it will turn it will turn people into worse than they are now. You know, so uh, don't worry about the part about whether or not 
their people hooked into their careers like they were years ago. It's a different world now. They 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 may talk like that, but they just uh, you can be guaranteed people are freaked out. That's that. That's, so we have to address the better angel of their natures where where they're at a point where they might actually listen. You know, they when they weren't going to listen before. So you got to well, you got to come at people from the top level, not from anything supposedly very practical. Yeah, let's see what he has to say. You have a response? That's a lot to it's a lot to bite on, uh, right? Because okay, as long as uh, mm, all right, I, I would delegate it to other people because for one, well, don't ask me to teach because I mm-mm, I I have problems with the uh, trying to uh, pick apart the trying to find the truth myself. I guess it's it's a result of the lack of schooling I had. I am that I have problems with this. So for one, I need to improve my uh, creative um, creative abilities, so to speak. Um, but the, yeah, okay, right. So uh, so it's definitely not going to be a one, two, three process, correct? Probably I guess not. Something that, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. All right. Okay. Well, but you know, you're welcome. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say you're welcome to to work with us on. You know, we have Shakespeare readings and uh, poetry readings and uh, Plato readings. You know, if you really do want to work on developing that, you're welcome to work with us. Gotcha. All right. We want to take that up. All right. Thank you. Okay. Very good. Okay. Can you hear us? Hello? Hello? Yes. Now we can hear you. Oh, okay. I don't want to lower the level of the discussion. This is Judy Clark here in the uh, New Jersey region uh, with the LaRouche organization, but... um, my husband and I had the uh, really shocking um, moment on a street corner over in Staten Island in the last month where an African woman, not, I mean, African, she was from an African nation. She's also an American citizen and raising a family here. Son goes to college and so on. And she's in the medical profession, but she was in a wheelchair and she approached our table, which had this the big signs, the big A-frames on the corner there by the bank, you know, that that stop the Green New Deal's genocide and so on. Um, But she confronted us with the fact that she was in a wheelchair. She was waiting on the corner for her husband to pick her up after work. And um, she informed us. She said, I was raised in an African country. She's our contact and so forth and wants to subscribe to our, 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 um, our work. And she said, um, the reason I'm sitting in this wheelchair is because my parents, who were professionals, well-educated and highly placed in the government in her country of origin, and when she was two years old, they didn't want to get her the polio vaccine because they thought it would kill her. And she's in a wheelchair (laughs) today as an adult in the United States in the medical profession seeing this hysteria 
against the vaccination, against the COVID virus, uh, from, you know, the, the really strikingly um, high-level insight that she has. It isn't just sort of, we might just think it's like extreme Trumpers or, you know, wild-eyed uh, or, or the whole thing that they did through before, my husband was reminding me, before Black Lives Matter started rampaging in the streets and so on, there was this thing being spread throughout the African-American community here that it was actually designed to do just that, you know, to exterminate those who would be most vulnerable to the disease and would be getting the vaccine, and it's the vaccine that would kill you. So I only bring that up to say this portent, uh, this this principle of the the aesthetical education, and I'm rereading Lynn's a recent piece of Lynn's where he really goes through this on the Platonic, the Socratic dialogue. He said in this quote that I was just reading before you started this: "From that standpoint, you will come. You will also come to know that every form of important classical artistic composition, this is quoting Lyndon LaRouche, functions according to exactly the same principle as Plato's Socratic method." And uh, this is, he's discussing a lot in this. I'm sorry, I should reference the article. It's from uh, Fidelio magazine, the precursor to Leonore, which we're now reviving with the new generation. That was the spring 2001, uh, number one, issue number one of Fidelio by LaRouche. So anyway, uh, as aesthetical education, <laughs> but education on scientific principles in every, in every way. Uh, yeah, and, Anastasia, could you say a little bit more about what's actually in the magazine so people who are on, who want to get it and could get it, frankly, for the new year, uh, know what you, what you put in it? Absolutely. Yeah, we have a, um, a pretty wonderful paper from uh, Mr. LaBruche in the beginning, which is a response um, to, uh, I believe, it's the uh, head of the Teachers Association, um, you know, just going through what a, a, an aesthetical education curriculum would look like in the United States, how we would actually do that, um, which is very exciting to me <laughs> um, to have that to have that laid out. And then Mrs. LaRouche, she did a, a wonderful speech um, uh, uh, called the um, the cult of ugliness and the youth of of uh, of ugliness in classical uh, culture, I believe is the the title or class, classical literature. Um, and she really just hammers in at this problem of romanticism um, and emphasizes this point of of, of of this tension of the tension of um, classical uh, artistic composition that, you know, right now in modern composition, you have just this glorification of, of ugliness as being beautiful. And it's, it, you know, I mean, I could, I, I don't even want to tell you about the pornographic stuff at the SF MoMA. I mean, it's just bad. <laughs> but when you, you read or, or you work on something that's actually of, of a classical composition, it might be hard to hear or look at, but it does something to you that makes you desire to have something good, to do something good. And that's really the quality that, that we want to evoke, you know, 
so she really hits hard at, at some of this stuff. Um, and then I had gone through a few of the articles um, in my original presentation, but, you know, looking at Humboldt, the Humboldt school, looking at Confucius, uh, you know, in Chinese culture of how, how they're viewing uh, how to ed- educate your, your soul, uh, your spirit. Uh, looking at, um, uh, we have a very controversial, a few controversial pieces um, on uh, Farrakhan. Uh, Louis Farrakhan, who did a, a concert, uh, they, they showed a concert of his on his birthday just this, this year, uh, which was incredibly beautiful, so beautiful. Uh, and his relationship, um, not just on what he did uh, with this uh, piece, um, but also his relationship to, um, uh, to music and uh, even our organization. Some of the people he worked with were in our organization. Uh, and he even gave remarks on Lynn's passing. So uh, there's just a lot in there to, to take in that were we to start a curriculum, we could use this magazine and go to any teacher, go to a principal, <laughs> go to a, a professor and say, this is what we want to do. We need to demand this now. Let me add that she has on the cover of the magazine a painting by Eastman Johnson, an American artist who does a painting uh, of an African-American reading at the heart after just after emancipation uh and you when you see the painting you'll you you if you want to have an idea of what the notion of the fidelio opera and the what we would call the floristan principle won't say more about what that means if you get it if you get the if you get the opera you'll understand who floristan is and if you then get the magazine or do it conjunctively uh, you'll get the idea of what we mean by the Florestan principle. Because the notion is that he's sitting and he's reading, and it's that that liberates. That's, that thereby goes freedom. Uh, so that's the cover. Uh, and the, uh, so the magazine as a whole uh, has a power uh, that is um, controversial in today's America, but is exactly what is needed. So I just invite everybody to, to get it and read it and uh, and discuss it. Uh, so so that's uh, that's good. So thank you for the question. We're going to move on. We have a few other people to get through here. Thanks. Yes, did you hear us? Hi, this is Steve in California, and uh, I just I, I really like this. Um, I'm, I'm re- I respond a lot to to what we're doing here tonight. Uh, this, this this title that you used, Anastasia, uh, to what end do we educate? I mean, uh, obviously, um, well, it, it wasn't like to what end do I read or to what end do I, or, um, yeah, it's to what end do we educate? There's something embedded in in this uh, that uh, the kind of, uh, you can kind of see that the solution within itself. Because you're talking about classroom education, and of course, we're, 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 what we do is we're a political organizing uh, uh, movement, and uh, so obviously people shouldn't be um, <clears throat> uh, 
separating these two things. So uh, when we when we're reading Schiller, uh, to what <clears throat> to what end or, or what is and to what end do we study universal history? Uh, we we're confronted with a completely different way of of looking at history, uh, which is there in that title, universal history. So uh, what, what, what this educational movement that you're talking about and this political organization that we do, uh, it does convert, it seems to converge on this idea that man is out to discover universe, universals, universe, uh, how the laws, natural law, uh, physical laws. And so uh, this is my question is, is because uh, Schiller, he, he does apply this method to different places like ancient Greece when he discusses Solon and Lycurgus. And we just went over the mission of Moses. But there's a there's a classical setup of uh, of uh, of a problem, of a crisis, of uh, a rotten Denmark, again, uh, that that uh that requires some kind of response from actors uh, i mean human actors on the stage of history and how and how you you respond uh defines uh what you would call progress which is a classical principle and that reaches back to what dennis was talking about when he says that we're entering the age of physical economy you know this is the metric of progress which has been uh eliminated as an idea in the postmodern um, uh, uh, classroom. So this is my question is uh, what if one of these, what if our job is to do something like a Schillerian uh, lecture, something like entitled not mission of Moses, not so long in Lycurgus, but Lyndon LaRouche 2022 and you, how do we define this uh, process of change and locate ourselves, especially as we organize? Oh, that is fun. <laughs> That's a fun <laughs> idea. I think um, I'm not really sure exactly how to, to, to go about it and describe something, but it, it's more just like a feeling um, of just how close we are. Um, I mean, we literally have young people right now that are reading LaRouche and we're not even talking to them. <laughs> they're, they're just doing it. <laughs> um, you know, there's something in the air. You know, this is what, what, what Shelley talked about, you know, that there comes a, a time when there's just this moment where people are receptive to great ideas. And obviously we're blessed to have known Lynn have worked with him. Many of us, you know, in, in this organization have the opportunity to work with him directly. Um, and there's a certain responsibility to that. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of like Plato, where we're taking the thoughts and ideas and method of Lynn and we're acting upon it. Um, and that, just, just that action of, of us working people through this this crisis right now is I think what's going to create that change. Uh, there's nobody else that, that has it uh, just to be perfectly, I, I have yet to meet one group that has had this kind of courage and 
um, thoughtfulness as, as this organization does. Um, so anyway, that's what I would I would say to that. <laughs> I think that you're right. This is you know this really is the year of Larouche. As, as dire as it might look, it's also very close to victory. Let's add a couple here, here. of things there. Next year will be the 100th anniversary of Linda LaRouche's birth. Uh, and the reason that the issue of physical economy, it will be at the forefront of next year. Uh, easily identified for people who are interested in retrieving, which you can get from the archive, a uh, 2005 uh uh, uh, issue of the Executive Intelligence Review. It's just available online. It's called The Principle of Power. And it was done as a kind of Christmas gift to the world, a bit similar to what Beethoven did with the writing of his uh, piano sonata in A flat major, Opus 110, which was uh, finished on Christmas Day, released on Christmas Day of 1824. Is it or 1825? One of the two. I think it's 1824. Anyway, it's similar. Because what he does, Lynn was 82 years old, I think, at the point that he wrote this. He had worked with the uh, youth movement, which is sort of a second-generation process of recruitment for him. The first process was from 66 through 74, fundamentally. That's when it all happened. And then the other process was from about 1999, approximately, through 2004. Um those are approximations. You can, one can stretch it a little bit more or less in different directions. But there were two occasions on which he did something, a little bit like what Bach did with the well-tempered Clavier. Uh, and he proved in each, in each case that he could do something which you, he shouldn't have been able to do the first time, and he did it better the second time, uh, which is the same as what Bach did. Now, we say these things often about Lyndon LaRouche. It's hard for people to maybe not even imagine it, but it's sort of hard to know, well, are we really telling the truth or not? The principle of power is something you can get which is online. And it's got, I think, 24 or something like that uh, sections, which are pedagogical sections added by young people to a, na- a narrative, not a narrative, but a, but a kind of a, 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 pre- a presentation by Lynn, uh, which could be said to be sort of analogous to Plato's The Laws, not in its content, but it actually sort of supersedes what Plato was trying to do in that case. Uh, this thing uh, identifies what power is, See, because people don't understand what power is. That's, that's the big issue, right, in life, the big issue. Um, that's one of the problems of, of, of reducing education to mere necessity. Say, well, because we've got mm-hmm. to stop the coronavirus, we've got to find a solution to it. So no matter what, we are going to find a solution. It, yeah, true, is a problem, though, because where's the power of mind come from? Does it come from that? Uh, that's a little percussive. It, 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 certainly that may be a factor, and met, often is a factor. That can't be what it actually is composed of, because creativity does have to have a free element. Of course, is one of the things that Schiller talks about. So I would just invite people to take a good look at this, this thing called the principle of power. See, because what do people believe? They believe there's unprincipled power, right? And we're all dominated by this unprincipled power that's being wielded by these powerful people with their powerful guns and their powerful nuclear weapons and their super, super, super powerful Internet. Right? People say this stuff and get away with it. 
They're walking all over the globe saying things like this, claiming to be, quote, political or something. And these people are simply, frankly, useless. Their movements are useless. Their blogs are useless. They're not, they're not ill-meaning. I'm not saying that. But they're just useless because that's not true. Those things are not power. There is a principle to power. Unprincipled power is not power. That's, again, the lesson of fidelio. People have to act on, the, on behalf of the principle of power. You know, if you don't have somebody that's willing to do it, yeah, then, of course, as they say, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is that good people don't do anything. That, that, that's what happens. But that doesn't mean that evil is a power. Evil exists in the absence of the use of the principle of power. And that is the thing that people don't want to hear because then you've got to be responsible for that. And, and, you know, that's like the whole issue of the mission of Christ, which, you know, people talk about Christmas. They sort of skip over that part because that's the issue. Um, so I just think there's a lot of ways for us to think about how we can use this year, which is about to begin, 2022. It's Lynn's 100th, would have been his 100th birthday. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can do to make this science a physical economy. Uh, the dominant or hegemonic uh, point of inflection, not just point of discussion, but point of inflection globally, we can find ways to do that. Because there are forces in the world that want to do that. There's plenty of people. I mean, certainly in the nation of China, other nations. And, and there is, in fact, this underlying necessity, which is that the coronavirus is, is functioning on the basis of nonlinear functions, of hyperbolic functions, of ideas which actually are more advanced physical uh, pro- pro- propositions than most people have in their heads but not more advanced than what LaRouche was talking about, wrote about, talked about, discussed with, you know, this is available. So that a lot of the parts of the documents that people have tended to skip over over the course of years, right, that may have been around, that was too difficult. No, that's exactly the section, right, that if you get that, then you can understand what to do about this situation we're facing right now. So I, I just would invite people, first of all, I think the Leonora magazine has enough material in there and it's got a lot of shorter stuff and so on that you, that's a good place to get in there and, and sort of train. But I would uh, very much suggest that take a look. I think it's December of 2005. It's an executive Intelli- intelligence review magazine. It's called the principle of power. You can just like click on it and it'll be right there. Okay. We've got, to, got, got another person in queue. Thanks for the question. Okay, can you hear us? Hi, this is Issa in Los Angeles. Um, I just wanted to say that I thought what Anastasia shared about, I I believe she said Mr. Billington and Stuart going um, to visit the prisons and and, um, having those interventions uh, with people that otherwise wouldn't be blessed by that was exceptionally moving. Um, I think the idea of having the capability to completely change someone's perspective on life um, and overall just really alter how their thought process works is 
overall like one of the most beautiful concepts I, I think I've ever really encountered in this group seems to do it quite magically. Um, I, I do think, Dennis, you kind of started to touch on um, a little bit of uh, the answer to my question here, but I, I just wanted to say that in in my experience, I think sometimes the most difficult, uh, I have the most difficult time reviving hope in people that are uh, religious fundamentalists. Um, a lot of times they'll mm-hmm. believe in a higher power, um, but don't understand uh, the connection to that higher power and their need um, to act. Uh, a lot of them will say, I can pray about this, but, you know, um, they won't do more. They're not willing to do more. So I was just going to ask any advice uh, when dealing with those situations or individuals. And, Dennis, I know that you were or almost became a man of the clock, so I don't know <laughs> if you would be, be first to comment on, on that or anyone else. Have I have I supposed to, to take this up? Or <laughs> Go ahead, please. up the cup. <laughs> I, I I can't discuss. I well, I could discuss what happened, but uh, let me put it this way: in the world of 1966 through 68. I did attend a Catholic seminary for three years. Uh, It was essentially very much like a prep school, Um, though, I mean, it was it was a religious school. You're up in the morning at 6 a.m. You're in bed at 10 and, you know, you're in chapel at 630 and, you know, there's chapel three times a day and there's other things that you do. And there's, of course, the mass. There's many things that that it it was it was a seminary, but it was different because of the, the times. Um, but what happened was that although I was the recipient of their, you know, they would do prizes all the time. Everybody's been through these things in prep school, knows something about how this works. So you had, you know, the class honors and you had the different things would be given out for different things. So I was the, uh, there was sort of a, what's called religion prize, same as the theology prize. So the three years I was there, I won it. Uh, but then the last year, as the school was closing down for lack of funds, among other things, I, I was informed that they didn't really think I exactly had a vocation for the priesthood because the problem was that I also had one of the four worst records in their history. Um, so I, I say that to point out the following, uh, just about this issue of people of who were fundamentalists. Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I ran into. Um, and But what is the nature of the problem? The, the, the issue, especially at that time, because that was an easy, this is an easy way to pose it to people. You know, if you think about those years in America uh, and the assassinations and other things, um, the issue is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about. People who want to take a look at this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, was a Protestant theologian. He was executed by the Nazis in 1945, just two weeks before uh, the camp that he was located at was, was liberated, um, actually a few days before. Um, and he was part of the, uh, ultimately, the bomb, the bomb plot against Hitler. Uh, he visited New York a couple of times uh, in Union Theological Seminary. Uh, 
uh, and the uh, the first time was I think just about 1934, I believe. Could have been late 33. But what's important is that when he went to the theological seminary uh, uh, in New York, he, he he was baffled by the theology classes. He just wasn't being moved by anything that he was experiencing. He just couldn't understand quite what. And he spoke English well. It wasn't it wasn't that problem. That wasn't the problem. Um, but they, they seemed abstruse, abstract, kind of not really. He just couldn't figure out what was wrong. And then he said he went down to the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem. That's the church that Adam Clayton Powell Sr. ran. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. became a very famous congressman uh, from that. And that was the son. They, uh, they were both ministers. But he said that there he found what he thought Christianity was. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer did was he collected uh, the spirituals. He had uh, uh, both uh, music and also recordings. When he returned to Germany, uh, he later uh, came back one more time. Uh, I think it was in 39. Uh, Friends of his wanted him to stay because they thought he was going to get killed if he stayed in Germany. Uh, and he was stayed for about five or six days. He did come out because his life was threatened. But then after a few days, he said, I've got to go back. I, I can't be um, separated. Uh, he had been a lifelong pacifist, by the way. And uh, as he, when he returned, he used the spirituals uh, as code uh, in, the, in the German underground. He, 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 had, he taught these to people, and people learned them in various ways, and they used them uh, for the purpose of uh, doing both intelligence and reporting intelligence and so on, kind of basically in the same way that slaves had used the spirituals in part. Now, that didn't mean, though, and that's why I tell that story, that he wasn't religious. It didn't mean, oh, yeah, the, the spirituals are just codes, and if you put in this idea for this, then you understand exactly what they're saying. That's what a lot of people like to say that, and they think they're being very clever. No, the most important thing about Bonhoeffer is he wrote a book called Discipleship. It was published as The Cost of Discipleship, and it's something that I read when I was 14 because King had read it and had recommended it. Um, And this was 1966 at that point. Um, And the key to the book which people know kind of. It's actually many things in it that are important. But there's this idea, there is no such thing as cheap grace. That if you say that you are a Christian, you are called to the crucifixion. That didn't mean you're called to die necessarily in the normal sense. Matter of fact, it's to a kind of different kind of death. It's the kind of death that Dante discusses in Inferno. Uh, in his uh, Commedia, the first part of it, uh, and that descent into hell that Dante does together with the poet Virgil to confront Satan, who is basically treason. And, and uh, you know, that, that's where the bottom of the center of hell which is frozen. Um, and he and Dante uh, crawl down the back of Satan, sort of down his backside, basically, and, and they end up, after they crawl out, they end up in what's called purgatory. They, they actually sort of flip around 
and everything is an ascent from there on in. Now, that's what Bonhoeffer meant by crucifixion. The issue is, and this is the problem that you get with, fund, with the fundamentalist, is that God is a product, or rather, the not, it is the knowledge of God. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to know. Now, now this is very, very tricky to talk about, okay? And every person that talks about it has got to be careful. Uh, the issue when you're talking to people like that and you're looking at death all around, you're looking at the collapse of any sense of mission or purpose in much of the United States. You're looking at young people who are committing suicide, uh, you know, because of being, uh, you know, bullied or whatever it may be through the Internet. And they're 14 years old or 15 years old. Or you're looking at like the case of that girl, what's her name, Billie Eilish, who says, you know, she's 20 years old now. She's looking at pornography from the time she was 11 years old and just didn't really know what was happening and now says this is one of the worst things that's destroyed me. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean she's a, you know, I know, I know all about the things and the, the videos and stuff she makes. But, but, but think about the idea that the person that like that is saying that to you. Now we get to the issue of what you are talking about concerning religion. As Bill Warfield, the singer, uh, used to say to us, and was also said by uh, an important, his, his father was a minister. William Warfield's father was a minister. People, I think, know that he was associated with our organization for a long time. He's a great baritone um, and, and, and very much part of the Schiller Institute. He's a very close friend of Lyndon LaRouche. And he used to, his father used to tell him, well, the mission of the preacher is to go into the bars and the houses of, of prostitution and so on, and that's where you got to go to get the people who are supposed to be in your church. But if you're going to do that, you have to have the strength of two to come up out of it. So what you're dealing with in this question is that. You're dealing with the same. Lyndon LaRouche was probably the best example I can give of that, not because we refer everything to Lyndon LaRouche all the time, but he used to do this. And people saw it in speeches often that, that you know, he'd give a speech. And then what would happen, you get to these questions and answers, and it was like the, the speech, which you knew had to have been thought through and was prepared. But then the questions would go higher and higher and higher. And you knew there was no way he had any idea what people were going to ask him. Why was that? How could he do that? It was because what would happen was he was inside. He would, he would allow the person to get inside of his mind so he could get inside of their mind. And he would allow the person to get inside of, his, of, 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 of their own mind by hearing him answer them so that they were hearing themselves answer the question. They weren't hearing his voice. They were hearing their voice answering the question the way they would answer if they knew how to answer it that way. And the phenomenon that people would experience or express about Lynn, uh, and I can say that from the first time I saw him, is that you knew that he had said something 
really important. And when you would try to say it, you couldn't say it. Yet you knew what it was, but you didn't have the words for it. Which meant that it had been in your mind in some fundamental sense before he said it. Not as an active, conscious thought, but as a pre-conscious potential. So the issue of fundamentalism is that, the, is, 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 is that it, is, it avoids the issue of conversion. Because conversion is not causing someone to accept what you say about God. Conversion is causing someone to converge upon their already existent knowledge of the existence of God. So you got to get out of your way so they can get out of their way. And so what happens with this, and this is the issue of what we're talking about with the uh, World Health Platform, for example, or this Operation Ibn Sina that we name. If you read the works of Ibn Sina and you, read, and you think about him as a great physician who was able to cure people, but he had no formal training. Guy knew everything he says from the age of 16. Well, what, 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 is, what is he talking about? I mean, obviously he talked to scholars and there were things he learned. I, I don't mean that that didn't happen. But the way we think of formal schooling, that didn't exist. So, so when we talk about Ibn Sina, we're talking about someone who, like Lyndon LaRouche, like Leibniz, like Ben Franklin in a different way, these are people for whom the inside of their head was no different than the, than the universe of which they found themselves to be a part, the real universe. Okay, now this is what we can do. Because why? Because Glenn did it. And he left behind not only all these documents, but he also had his collaboration with Helga, both the marriage itself and the collaboration. And so many of the things that we are proposing to do these days come out of that. They come from that place. And so fundamentally, I'm, I would invite people to take the idea of the, the journey of the Magi to the manger at Bethlehem as the same as the journey of Dante from Inferno to Purgatory to Paradiso, which was, yes, it's theological, but there's something else. This is the, it's the idea that the mission is that if you find, as, God, as Dante says in the last of the, of the poems, the con, there's a series of poems, there are a hundred of them, uh, they're all, you know, certain length. And he says he looked into the face of God and saw his own. That's the same thing that is intended by what we talk about by this mission uh, to save Afghanistan or the mission of the World Health Platform or any of the other missions we're talking about. Now, now that was the theology of practice that got me kicked out, not of the seminary, not because I knew this. <laughs> I didn't know what they were referring to. But that's what it was, okay? So that's what I would say to people in general who are listening tonight. Yeah, we are not fundamentalists, see? We don't, we don't go that way. All we mean, though, by that is not that we are opposed to people who have that point of view, but that there is a character, there is an ontological character 
to the spiritual realm that is apprehensible by all if you are Islamic, if you are Jewish, if you are Christian, even if you are atheistic, it is apprehensible even to that person, that, or, or certainly, and there's, of course, Buddhism and many other things. Why? Because it's part of nature. It's the book of nature. And physical economy is our journey as a human race to reconciling the coincidence of opposites of the fact that some of us speak Arabic and some of us speak English. Uh, some of us speak Chinese and so on. So what we say about God or what we say about the principles of the universe has got to be different. And it's going to be contradictory in its particular particularity. But there's something that underlies that. And that is really the substance of, of what we call morality. Um, and, and so that's the way to try to try to talk to a fundamentalist or anyone else, because you've got to get them. The issue is, have they accepted themselves in the image of, and it may be Christ in some cases, maybe something different in another, right? But have you, you accepted yourself as part of that mission of salvation of the human race? That, that's, that's, the, that's the issue of the cost of discipleship or of the crucifixion, of the accepting of the cup of Gethsemane. That's the issue that underlies it. I mean, that two short points. I had a lot of dealings growing up with religious fundamentalists in, in the South, in the civil rights movement. And, you know, you get decent people who say things like, um, you know, at a critical point, it's very disappointing because they'll just say, well, I'm going to pray to God. And they're not the worst people in the world. They're not, you know. But it's like in the middle of a decent discussion, they would they would be burping, you know, something ugly that happened. And generally, I found the most effective thing just to say, "Oh my God, you you have such courage." You know, I find it sacrilegious to take the Lord's name in vain. I when I pray, I pray for the courage to go out and do His work. I've got to think about what you're praying. I just leave it at that. That you know, they're not. They don't really believe what they say. They they just people are scared, and they don't see a way for them to actually take on the full mantle of what Dennis is talking about. So it's just a reaction formation. I doubt most of these people. Yeah. The second comment is simply uh, uh, on the irony of of parents and this woman in Africa, you know, being afraid of the vaccine. It's, it's something very truthful about this. Uh, how can a government, why trust a government that's done everything wrong? So you can't just roll out vaccines. As a, as you, you know, it's like a clock that strikes the right time twice a day. It's broken, but it's, you know, it's, it's fixed at 3 o'clock. So twice a day you say it's right. You just can't trust that clock. You can't trust a government that occasionally gets something right. So the World Health Program, an FDR-type mobilization on the economy, it has to be done. And it's also, secondarily, the only way to to build trust back. You can't you can't even talk yourself blue. But what's happening inside people is that there's a it's a you know the, there's a fundamental uh, break in their trust of society and the government, and it's uh it's not going to get solved. Uh, it, the inability to get vaccine levels up to where they need to be 
is the same inability of uh, the government's response on the vaccines, uh, how they think they think in gimmicky terms. So anyhow, that's those two short comments for Issa and Judy. You could always tell them what God did in Dante's Inferno, where he put all the neutral angels. That usually, that's always a fun <laughs> image. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right. I thank you all for those um for those responses. Definitely need okay. to get the cost of discipleship. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the question. Okay, very good. So we're at our summary point. And if there's anything that hasn't been said, please uh, go ahead. I think I'll let uh you go first, Anastasia, and say whatever you'd like to say. Well, I really appreciate being on this discussion. Thank you, everybody, for all the questions. Um, for anybody who is interested um, in, in joining some of these reading groups, please uh, reach out to us. We'd love to, to work with you. We really want to emphasize Lynn's polemical method, you know, like we talked about tonight, you know, getting people to understand the power of their own mind and the power to change others to see the power of their mind is what we're doing. That That is how we're going to make, make the change in the world that we need to make. Um, and please subscribe to Leonora, uh, become a recurring member of the Schiller Institute. Uh, it's only $5 a month. You're welcome to give a lot more if you'd like to, but a minimum of $5 a month uh, to become a subscriber for Leonora. Okay, David? I guess I'll just sum up the stealing from Abraham Lincoln the way I ended the article on the situation. I think it addresses proper aesthetic education to deal with such a disaster, a health disaster the world's facing in uh, 2020 and 2021. Uh, this is Lincoln's second inaugural, a few weeks before he was assassinated, uh, at the, near the end of a war when you'd think he would say something like, Wow, those were four tough years. I really appreciate everybody, you know, closing ranks and and uh, it was tough. And I haven't been able to tell you this the last several years, but you know, now we won this fight, and you know, let's have a little bit of applause. He doesn't say that. He, he says, "I'm concerned about your soul." He says, uh, "The Almighty has His own purposes. Uh, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come." But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. That's a, a biblical quote. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? And it's been our situation in America for turning its back on uh, what we should mean for the world and accomplish for the world since the murders of Dr. King and, and John Kennedy. Uh, don't get cynical about uh, how the world was created. Uh, the woes, the evil has been done. The woes have been carried out, you know, but 
what he says, what he ends is, is fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. If it took four years of killing and murder, we should not get cynical. You can't sit there and, you know, whatever we've gone through in recent period, uh, whatever it takes for the creator or the creative processes of the universe to get our attention as to what our duty should be, um, that's what it takes. We can be amazed at how much ugliness and stupidity we've seen over decades and what the United States, but it's, it's, we, it's um, physical reality, physical economy, and the way the world got set up simply calls upon our better angel of our natures to go ahead and take a deep breath, don't, uh, you know, go listen to that Beethoven Fidelio, let it give you the courage uh, to, to move forward in 2022. It is it, one of the best cultural presents that anybody's ever given the human race. And we'll, we can make it out of this mess, and, and people will get happy about it. And they'll say, well, I, I hated that corona period, that coronavirus period, but goodness, uh, it, it changed my life around. I finally became a human being. I want to thank everybody for joining us, particularly Anastasia and David and all of the people that asked the questions. I want to thank everybody that's been with us all this year in particular, which was a rather tumultuous one, both for us and for the country. I want to thank people for what they're about to do in the oncoming new year and uh, invite you to join us the first day of the year on Saturday. Uh, Harley Schlanger will be with us on our on our LaRouche organization uh, show. Uh, and there'll be more, of course, to say about whatever may be evolving between then and now on the international front. Uh, So uh, there are many uh, tasks, and there's a lot of things to be done, uh, and I think we'll be up to doing them as long as we uh, listen to the wise words of Lyndon LaRouche, so to speak, and also begin to act in the same way uh, that he did. Uh, So, okay, very good. So we'll see you next year here if we don't see you sooner well actually we'll see you next year either way either saturday which is next year or on here on next thursday